If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started. Thanks so much. And make your way back to your seats and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 will be our scripture this morning that we'll read. And read along in God's Word together with me, please. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let's read God's Word together. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. What a day. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a 
a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The title of the message this morning is Godly Responses to the Holiness of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at godly responses to your holiness, to your otherness, the fact that you are set apart and high and exalted, high above us, holy, I pray that reverential all would set down upon us. And as we look at David's example from 2 Samuel chapter 2 through 6 here this morning, I pray that you would move our hearts And apply the Word of God to our hearts that we might walk before You responding well to Your holiness. We thank You so much, Almighty God, for loving us so much that You sent Your only Son. Increase our awareness of His ministry and His sacrifice before our eyes today. It calls us to love Jesus even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The first thing that we're going to look at here in relation to godly responses to the holiness of God is I want to cover uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2 through chapter 6 for this sermon in our Seeing Christ in All of Scripture series. And um, I'm going to move through chapter 2 through 6, but as you have, keep your Bibles open, be reading through the sections that I'm covering during the sermon and uh, we'll be covering uh, a lot of ground, so stay with me here. I, I left this off last time. We covered chapters two, uh, chapter two, one through four, um, and we learned that Judah had anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. The men of Judah had come, and David waited upon the Lord, and the men came and, and anointed him. And so now David is king over the tribe of Judah. And one of the things that takes place here is the promise that David received from the Lord was that he was going to reign over Judah, but all of Israel. But that doesn't happen yet, because if you look in verse 8, it says in the word in chapter 2, but Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahinam, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, ends up reigning over for a short period of time, but he's reigning over the ten northern tribes of Israel, and David is reigning over the one tribe of Judah at this time. And so 
The first point I want to make in relation to godly responses to the holiness of God is there is a submission to God's timing in David's life. I want this to be applicable into our own lives as well. But David waits on the Lord. He becomes king of Judah, but he doesn't get made king of the ten northern tribes of Israel until seven and a half years later. Now you've got to understand, he was anointed king by Samuel back when he was about 15 or 16 years old. And he's anointed uh, king of uh, Judah and Israel and, and when, he, when he's like 30. And so there's a period of time that's passed already of 15 years by the time he comes to this point in chapter 2. And now he's got to wait longer before he actually ends up reigning over both Judah and all the other 10 tribes of Israel and Israel as a whole. So it doesn't happen all at once. The promise has taken time to become reality. And yet David is just walks in submission to God's timing. He doesn't raise himself up to be king before the men of Judah, but he waits for the men of Judah to come and to anoint him. He had already been anointed by the prophet Samuel, but he waits upon the Lord and the Lord raises him up in due time. Um, when Abner comes and, and basically puts Ishbosheth in place as king, uh, Abner was really cutting against the grain of what the Lord's plan was because Abner knew that David was the one that God had chosen. Abner says that later on in this section of scripture. He knows that David was the one who was the man of promise, who was God's chosen king, and yet he raises up Saul's son Ishbosheth. Remember, Jonathan and two of his other brothers had died in the battle with their father, King Saul. And so Ishbosheth, 40 years old, the son of Saul, takes over the reign. But David patiently waits upon the Lord to bring about God's promise. Rather than striving to make it happen. This is important. It's important for all of us to, to really grip onto this. Because I think there's a temptation to think when you're in a situation where there's, there's a hope and a promise up ahead that we need to make it happen and we aren't inclined to wait upon the Lord. We tend not to be very good waiters upon the Lord, that the logic in our minds often tends to be, well, we got to do something. And what I want to say is that waiting on the Lord is doing something. We don't tend to think that way. Waiting seems to us to be very passive, and we don't like it. It cuts against the grain of our nature not to come into the fulfillment of the promise. And yet David, time and time again, doesn't, through his own striving, grasp Even what has been promised to him, he waits for the Lord to bring it about in his timing. He ceases with temptations to strive. And one of the principles that we can practice is wait for others to raise you up. Trust in God and submit to his plans and his timing. So submission to God's timing is one of the things that stands out about David. Secondly, lamenting wickedness and those affected by it. Abner, later on, turns against Ishbosheth. And if you read the story, you see that Ishbosheth 
comes and accuses him, and Abner doesn't like it. And Abner purposes at that point, and he says to Ishbosheth, I'm going to turn the kingdom, these ten, ten northern tribes, because I have that power and influence, I'm going to turn it over to David where it belongs. And Ishbosheth just loses courage. And Abner goes and begins to seek out David. He and David actually meet together and they finalize those plans. And Joab, who was David's nephew, and he's going to factor into the story many times as we head into this next uh, section of weeks. Joab, David's nephew, after the plans were set aside with Abner and David for David to be made king of all the 12 tribes of Israel and for the kingdom to be brought into complete unity, Joab, out of a desire for revenge upon Abner, Abner killed Joab's brother Asahel in a confrontation between the tribe of Judah and all the tribes of Israel. The men had a fight and Abner struck down Asahel and Joab didn't forget it. But then after, later on, when Joab hears that David sent Abner away in peace, he doesn't like it. He goes and he meets Abner along the road and he murders Abner in chapter 3, verses 26 through 30. And David laments Abner's death. He mourns over him. And there's a, there's a principle here in relation to walking in holiness before the Lord that we need to lament wickedness and also lament those who are affected by it. And here Abner is affected by the murder that Joab inflicts upon him. And David is pained and grieved by it. You see in uh, chapter 3 verse 34, Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And David leads the people in weeping over the loss of Abner. In relation to Joab and what Joab did, the third thing that I want to reference in relation to responding to holiness is trusting in the Lord to avenge. We don't get the sense specifically necessarily that, that he knew here that Joab specifically was the one who did it. But in 39, we see that the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So there's a description here. He knows that it was probably one of the other brothers of Asahel that did it and may have had his suspicions, but perhaps he didn't have clear evidence to prosecute Joab at that time. Some suggest that Joab may have been so useful to David as his second in command that David may have overlooked justice here. But I think that it's possible that he didn't have sufficient evidence to prosecute Joab here. And he says, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So he's trusting the Lord to avenge and to bring justice. And so that's another response to holiness. Point four, there's just judgments rendered upon the wicked. After Abner is murdered, Ishbosheth has nobody and there are two assassins who come and they assassinate King Ishbosheth, and his reign only lasted two years. And they assassinated him, they cut off his head, and they carried Ishbosheth's head from the northern part of Israel all the way down to Hebron where David was in chapter 4. 
and they think that presenting the head of David's rival king is going to please David. And we see one of the responses of David is that instead of being pleased that one of his rivals is cut down, that the son of Saul was cut down, he acts in accordance with the way he has been acting, and he gives just judgment upon these murderers who killed King Ishbosheth. And I think one of the things that stands out here, brothers and sisters, you see it in uh, 4 verse 12. Look at God's word together with me. It says, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut their hands and their feet, and hanged them besides the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And so they honored Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, even though he was a rival king to David, but he, David rendered justice to the one who killed and assassinated without authorization, Ishbosheth. And so there's just judgment rendered upon the wicked. And one of the things that I noted in this is that even when David benefited from what was done, he still carried out justice upon the evildoer. And that's, that's a, an important point to note in, in King David's reign. And this is really starting to be seen throughout Judah and throughout Israel. Wow, you know, Israel would have reacted. How did David respond to Abner's death? Well, he mourned him. And how did David respond when Ishbosheth was murdered? If David would have rejoiced that Ishbosheth was murdered, it would have been a threat to the unity of the whole kingdom. But when the men of Israel realized that King David brought justice and destroyed the men who killed and murdered Ishbosheth, they, uh, David found favor, even more favor in their eyes. And so the fifth point I want to note in relation to a response to the holiness of God is after this takes place and Ishbosheth is murdered, David is actually in chapter 5 anointed king of Israel. This is really powerful. Look at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in an Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Again, he's not fighting for himself to make it happen. He's awaiting now the, the men of Israel to come and to anoint him king, even though it was already his right to be so. And we see that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So his reign over all the tribes of Israel was 33 years, but there was a total reign of 40 years, counting the seven and a half, seven and a half years that he had at Judah when he wasn't yet the king over all the kingdom. And so th- this next section is just glorious. Look at this in, ver- in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. The Jebusites, you've got to understand, this goes back, this actually goes back into the time and the days of Joshua, when the Lord had commanded his people to go into the promised land and to drive out all of the Gentiles in their midst and to really claim and take the the promised land in full. The Jebusites, and you see this throughout 
um, the Old Testament, they were so stubborn and they held on to what later became the city of David. They held on to Jerusalem. The Jebusites were strong and, and it always keeps repeatedly saying during the time of Joshua, they could not drive the Jebusites out. And so here with, with David, he comes and it's glorious what takes place here. It says, even though their threats stood in verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, Jerusalem. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. And so Jerusalem was taken by David, and he conquered a people that before this, the Israelites were not be able were not able to drive out. So, you gotta understand, destroying the Jebusites it, it gave the Israelites now possession, full possession over the Promised Land. It was a fulfillment of going into the Promised Land and driving out the the Gentile people and 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 really claiming the Promised Land for themselves. It was a fulfillment. It was a high water mark of the fulfillment of God's promise. That he was going to give the promised land to the people of Israel. And, and it's so wonderful here to see them taking possession of Jerusalem. And in verse 10 it says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I want to highlight here is, this picks up on the theme of, of in the Latin phrase, Christus Victor, or Christ Victorious. That We talked about David being a type of Christ. Here we see David the conquering hero, conquering the city of Jerusalem, driving away the enemies of God as the king of Israel should. And it's wonderful to see the people of Israel, the people of Judah, taking possession of Jerusalem here. And uh, what that means in terms of the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver to the people of Israel the promised land. And so um, the fifth point I want to make here is David, when all of this happened and he was victorious over the Jebusites, there's, there's, a, there's a manifestation of humility and that David knew God did it all and did it for the sake of his people. Look at chapter 5, verse 12 with me, and let's be moved by this. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David knew that it wasn't about him. But it was about God. And it was about his people. One of the things that really moves me about this point here, in, in terms of responding to God's holiness, carrying a, an awareness of God's holiness and worshiping the Lord, is that when you live this way, even after you achieve a great victory or a great success, you see, it's not about me, but it's about God and His people. God did all of this for His people. This is not for my glory, it's about God's glory. And it's about, for the benefit of His people. I love that. I love the humility involved with Him really recognizing and not gloating over, look at what I've done as king, but acknowledging. I think these are descriptions of why he's described as a man after God's own heart. He, he, he has these great moments, and instead of puffing himself up in pride, David humbly just acknowledges, God, 
you've done this for your glory and for your people. And I'm so honored to be a means to that end. But we would do well, brothers and sisters in Christ, to repeat the phrase, it's not about me, it's about God and his people. It's not about me, it's about God and his people. Amen? Point six, seeking the Lord for specific guidance before acting. I'm not going to spend long here, but after he drives out the Jebusites, uh, the Philistines end up marshalling all their forces to come against him. Though Israel had previously driven out the Philistines, um, they rise up and they come against David. And if you look at uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Um, what's amazing, and I, I'll just highlight this too, is that when, right after that, in verse 22, it says the Philistines came up yet again. So there's, there's a part two of this battle, and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. In 23, it says, And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. God gave David strategy in battle. He told him not to go straight up, but to go around and in, in essence flank them and take them from the rear. And so there's just this real description here of inquiring of the Lord and getting specific guidance from God Number one, I want to encourage all of us, brothers and sisters, that a lot of times we can be tempted to think, oh, you know, why, why pray? I'm not really going to get much guidance from it anyway. Why pray? I'm just going to have to decide what to do anyway. We, we lack faith that the Holy Spirit will guide us specifically and give us real clear direction. And of course, David is king and has a real special relationship and in relationship to the Lord here. But his desire to inquire of the Lord and not to simply presume to go up against the Philistines. He, he sees it and he recognizes, we just drove out the Jebusites. We just took Jerusalem. Should we go and crush the Philistines now? Yeah. We're on a roll here. He doesn't do that. He, he, he inquires of the Lord before he takes his steps. Men of Christ Community Church, may we inquire of the Lord before we take our steps forward in leading our families forward into our future. Women of God in Christ's community, seek the Lord and inquire of Him what the Lord desires for your family and what to do. And trust the Lord that as you inquire of Him, He's going to speak to you. I remember a good brother just saying to me, after you get done praying, spend some time just listening. Listen to the Lord through the Scriptures, but also listen to the Holy Spirit. Wait on the Lord and ask the Lord to speak into your heart and to guide you as as to whether you should take a course of action or not. A lot of times, the only way we tend to analyze whether or not something's the will of God is we merely weigh, and this is a way God does reveal himself, whether there's an open door or whether there's a closed door, and that's good. But brothers and sisters, we don't want to just simply evaluate God's will and discern it simply by that, that method alone. Let us inquire of the Lord. There may be a time when there's an open door in front of us and the Holy Spirit says, don't go through it. And there may be a time when the door's closed and the Lord says, trust me, I'm going to break it down. 
there's, there's certainly, there's much to inquiring of the Lord and seeking His will, but one of the marks of a man or a woman or a, a young person who is walking in the holiness of God is that they inquire of the Lord. Young people, ask God for help during the day, at school, in your classes. Ask Him to give you help in your time of need and trust that the Lord loves you and He sees you and He can help you in your schoolwork. He can help you with what you're facing and the trials you're facing with friends and difficulties relationally. And the Lord's walking with you through the hallways of your school. He's walking with you all the time. Cultivate that personal relationship with Him that you see here with David and let that be a blessing to you. Amen? There's specific guidance that David gets and that he seeks before acting. So I think what stands out there is don't presume. Inquire of the Lord. Get on your knees before God. Seek His face. Listen to Him. And then rise up and then go forward. But don't just simply uh, go ahead using simply common sense. That's what unbelievers do. They just, hey, what's best for me? What, what looks best for us to do here? And they judge whether it's the will to go forward based off of whether it looks like it's going to benefit them or not. They're not inquiring of God at all. They're not seeking Him. But Christians are supposed to be different. We are meant to have a personal relationship with the Lord. And I think we have a real wonderful example here. And I love, I've always loved this. I remember back in college reading that passage about the Lord telling David, no, no, don't just take them head on. Go around the balsam trees. I'm going to put a sound in the trees and you're going to go and you're going to take them from the rear. I'm like, that's awesome. He just gave them specific strategy in battle, God. And that's meant, when we read scriptures like this, it's meant to infuse us with confidence that our God is a personal God. He sees our family situation. He sees our lives. He cares about our lives in the details. And he will give you counsel in the details as well. So search the scriptures. The scriptures are our authoritative word of guidance. The Holy Spirit will never guide you against the word of God. So stand according to the word. But when you have specific matters, inquire of the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you with guidance as to which way you are to go. And you don't just see this here in Second Samuel chapter 5. You also see it in the book of Acts. The apostles were seeking the Lord constantly for guidance as to where should we go, where shouldn't we go. And you see Paul talking about that all the time where he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord told us not to go into Asia. But, you know, that was a specific mission direction and the Lord shut that down by giving specific direction. And as he was inquiring at other times, the Lord made it clear, no, go, go in that direction. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing that we have, God, here to help us all along the way. Amen, brothers and sisters. I'm so thankful for him. Uh, point seven, acknowledging that the victory is because of God. Um, I, I love uh, this verse in chapter five, verse 20. Look at what happens after uh, they defeat the Philistines. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And David said, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. That's his testimony coming out of the victorious battle. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. What a difference that is, brothers and sisters, to Julius Caesar saying, I came, I saw, I conquered. You see the difference? 
a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart, after there's a victory that the Lord renders, they, they give the glory to God and they say it was God who did it. He is the one who gets the glory. I love the scripture that says, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us, Lord. Don't you love that? All that we've accomplished, you have done for us. So acknowledge that the victory is because of God. Acknowledging that the victory is because of God is a mark of someone who's walking in holiness and in the fear of God. Um, point eight, obedience to the Lord's commands. So in verse 25 of chapter 5, it says, And David did as the Lord commanded him. And in this instance, it was to strike down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And so David obeyed the Lord's commands. One of the responses to the holiness of God in our life, brothers and sisters, is we obey the Lord Jesus' commands to us. We follow Him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's to be a real moved heart inside of us that is longing to do all we can to obey Christ's commands to us and to follow and obey the law of Christ. And so let us take stock of David's example here and his obedience to the Lord and do so. Uh, point nine in relation to uh, godly responses to the holiness of God would be reverential awe and fear of God. And here we get into chapter six, which we read in the opening. And I just want to point out what, what a story here. They're celebrating before the Lord and you're just thinking, wow, God's got to be so just great with this because they're, they're celebrating before the Lord and uh, look at what's taking place there at, at the threshing floor. There's, uh, there's songs being lifted up before the Lord. There's celebrating going on before the Lord with tambourines and castanets and cymbals in verse 5. But what happens in verse 6 is that the oxen stumble and Uzzah reaches out his hand to touch the ark of God and took hold of it. And it says in verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. What's the word of the Lord talking about there? One of the quotes I want to read is from R.C. Sproul in relation to this. And uh, he, he writes in his book, The Holiness of God, which I want to recommend to you the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. If you want to go deeper in understanding the holiness of God and walking in godly responses to it, I want to encourage you to pick that book up. Um, it's very inexpensive, but it'll bless you as you're kind of heading through your winter uh, to do that. Order that and enjoy. And if you do, please, uh, I'd love to hear how it's blessing you. Consider also the story of Uzzah who was struck down after attempting to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from falling out of an ox cart. His lack of regard for the Lord is evident in that the Ark was being carried on a cart instead of the priest's shoulders, which utilized the poles crafted for the holy vessel's transport. What's important is to note is it God has prescribed a way for the ark to be carried. And those verses are listed. Exodus 37, 1 through 5. 1 Chronicles 15, 1 through 15. Furthermore, while Uzzah's motivations were likely good, he probably did not want the ark to get dirty. He foolishly presumed his sinful hands were cleaner than the ground. 
The mystery is not that God pours out His wrath on sinners. The mystery is that our Holy Father puts up with transgressors at all. It is a wonder that the Lord is long-suffering since to Adam He only promised wrath. God cannot and will not compromise His holiness, but He can mercifully substitute Christ's righteousness, which His people so desperately need. May we never believe our Holy Lord owes us this grace. For if we were to get what we deserve, His wrath would fall immediately on our heads. And brothers and sisters, lest we think, ah, no, that's too harsh. Let's remember Uzzah who he sought to stabilize the ark as it was about ready to fall and hit the dirt. But I was thinking about that for me, brothers and sisters. If, if it had been me, I realized it would be presumption on my part to assume that for the ark, which symbolizes the presence of God amongst the people of God, for the ark to touch my skin provokes God to anger more than the ark simply falling into the mud. The mud has never rebelled against God like I have. And like you have. And even in the midst of holy celebration, the Lord strikes him down. You see David's response initially is he's angry about it. We're worshiping you here. And we see this also. Lest you think, ah, this is just Old Testament God, not New Testament God. You see it with Ananias and Sapphira in the revival in the early church. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must not ever presume to lie to the Holy Spirit. We must not treat God's holiness carelessly. But remember the story of Uzzah and the presumption. Remember the disobedience, and and David was part of that, not remembering the passage in Exodus 37, which commanded them not to put it on a cart but to have it be carried only by the priests and on their shoulders. Only the priests were to carry it. And Uzzah presumed to touch it. And God struck him down for his disobedience. And that's why it says here, he was struck down because of his error. Understanding God's word, brothers and sisters, is absolutely vital for us. To know our Bibles inside and out and to walk in accordance with the word And whenever we sin or we violate God's word, let us repent and never ever just say, ah, God's grace covers that. Let us take even the smallest in our own eyes infractions seriously because Uzzah had no idea when he was motivated, most likely out of the good of his own heart, to touch that which symbolizes the immediate presence the gracious presence of God amongst the people of God, when he touched it, not being a priest, the way that that offended God. We cannot just simply go before God unless we're covered by the blood of Christ, as John preached to us last week. We cannot just go before God and say, here I am. We must be covered by the blood. We must be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And only then can we enter into the holy place. Uzzah is an example of a sinner coming before the holiness of God uncovered in disobedience. And we must take stock of that and be moved. 
So let us know the word and pay heed to it. Christ community, God is holy. And the things that we are okay with in our lives, many of them, things we're okay with, God's not okay with. We have to look at God's word and examine ourselves like John led us so well in the Lord's Supper this morning. I was repenting. I was weeping as John was leading us because I realized we're about ready to partake in Holy Communion. The broken body and shed blood of our Lord symbolized by what we're holding in our hands and to take stock of my life and my sin. It is good to be broken and to repent before we partake. And let us marvel. Uzzah's story would have been every single one of our stories in here on the day of judgment. But you know what? Christ community, I've got good news for you. Christ was struck down so that you might not be struck down. Christ died so that you might live. Happy news. Happy gospel. But let us not take it lightly. That we've been delivered from not only temporal death. But eternal death. David was at first angry. But in verse 9 we see what the proper response to this story is. And David, verse 9, was afraid of the Lord that day. Amen. It's a good thing to have a reverential awe toward our God because our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews says. It is a good thing for us to fear the Lord and to recognize that He's holy and He's not to be presumed upon but loved and cherished and followed seriously and soberly throughout our lives. The final response to God's holiness, and this is where we'll close, is joyous celebration. Joyous celebration. I love this. Ponder this. The ark was made at this point. The ark was made about 500 years prior. You're dealing with a 500 year old treasure in Israel. It had traveled with the people of God through the wilderness. It dwelled in tents in the wilderness. And now it was entering the city of God. David and 30,000 chosen men of Israel gathered together. And David, as this was taking place, and he ushered in the ark into Jerusalem, it says he wore a linen ephod. It's a small little detail, but I want to highlight it. Because David not only wore the linen ephod, he offered up sacrifices before the Lord to atone for their sin. I love this. The concept of a king who would also be priest began in the scriptures, and Tom read it this morning during worship with Melchizedek in the Old Testament, the priest king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem before the Israelites had it. 
Salem is this very city where in the past Melchizedek, this priest king, ruled. And even Abraham paid homage to him and paid a tithe to Melchizedek out of honor to him as a priest king who worshipped Yahweh. And here is King David, the seed of the woman whose line would lead up to Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Here he is in Jerusalem, the city of David, dancing before the Lord with all of his might, offering up sacrifices while wearing the linen ephod, the clothing of the priests. All of this points to, all of this points to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Our king of kings, Jesus Christ. Our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us and offered up as priest the willing sacrifice of himself as lamb to die for our sins and shed his blood so that we who are unholy like Uzzah might be able to rejoice with joyous celebration before Him, having been forgiven and cleansed from our sins by His blood. And not just David was there dancing before the Lord on this day. I love the image of the 30,000 chosen men of Israel rising up. And I love what one Christian says, it's not a handful of professional men only that should be called to take part in the service of religion. Amen. Let all of God's men rise up. Let all of God's women rise up to serve the Lord and to shout and to dance before the Lord because the ark of God, which symbolizes the presence of God amongst the people of God, is coming in to the city of God in fulfillment to God's promise that He would drive out the wicked nations and put His people into the promised land. Behold, the high watermark, brothers and sisters, of God's fulfillment all the way back in Genesis 12 and 15 to Abram. That he would bring his people out of slavery and out of bondage and bring them into the promised land and settle them and prosper them there. Here it is. A high watermark moment. It was good and right and pleasing and appropriate for David as king to dance before the Lord with all of his might. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, What was the precise nature of this service? It was to bring into the heart of the nation, into the new capital of the kingdom, the Ark of the Covenant, that piece of sacred furniture which had been constructed nearly 500 years before in the wilderness of Sinai, the memorial of God's holy covenant with His people, and the symbol of His gracious presence among them. And Expositor's goes on to say, about this moment. It was as if the sun were again shining on them after a long eclipse. Or as if the father of a loved and loving family had returned after a weary absence. God enthroned on Zion. God in the midst of Jerusalem. What happier or more thrilling thought was it possible to cherish? I love that question. What happier or more thrilling thought was it possible to cherish? But in the midst of this occasion of exuberant celebration and joy, 
not everybody was joyful and not everybody was celebrating and not everybody was worshiping. I throw this in here to sober all of us. In the midst of all this joy, Michal, David's wife, she saw David, her husband, worshiping before the Lord. And instead of joining in, the Word of God says that she despised David in her heart. And she would not enter into the worship of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, she later mocked her husband when he came home for it in private. But the Lord heard. She was stricken for what she did here. And we must remember that there are consequences to not joining into the celebration. There are consequences to us not joining into the celebration and the worship of Jesus Christ. And to all of that, I just want to get all of your attention. Young people, young and old, everybody, let us all take stock of this moment. Every Sunday morning we have an opportunity to come and worship our risen Savior and King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I want to ask all of us to take stock of our hearts. Is your heart more like David? Full of joyous celebration at what Christ has done for you. Full of abandon and, oh, I don't care what people think of me. My Lord is risen and risen indeed. I want to lift my hands. I want to fall down on my face. I want to sit in quietude. I want to shout and leap like David. I want to have the full expression of manifestations biblically, of, of holy worship and honor to my God. I want to be a part of it. I want to encourage it in my brothers and sisters. And when I see it happening around me, I want to enjoy it and celebrate it and enter into it myself. Or, silently, we can snicker at it, mock it, Look at all these people. This is... <laughs> what, is, what is this? The difference between those two is eternal life, the embrace of Christ, or if we will not enter into the worship of Christ, if we will not enter in, the ark merely symbolized the presence of God amongst the people of God. It's symbolized. But we have Jesus in the flesh, risen from the dead to worship. And when we see the worship of God happening, and if we say, no, not me, not for me, I'm not going to be undignified and a fool like that. We have got to examine our hearts. And listen, by no means do I mean, if, if you struggle with worship and expressing worship and all of that, it, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It, it, it could sometimes mean you're just struggling through. And, but we do have to ask ourselves, if we struggle with manifesting the manifestations of celebration and joyous celebration in Scripture, if we jump higher at sporting events and lift our hands and leap and shout and dance because a football crosses a goal line, but, but when we come into church, we, we're unmoved and disinterested. We've got to examine our hearts, brothers and sisters. 
There's nothing more worthy of our greatest expressions of passion and exuberant celebration of leaping and of dancing than our God. Let us be David's. Let us not be Michal's. You know, as glorious as this moment is, I love what Expositor says, what happier or more thrilling thought was it possible to cherish? I've got one. As awesome as this is, this moment in the history of God's people, we await a day that is going to be even more joyous in its celebration, of which this moment here only pointed to. Ours will be in the new Jerusalem with Jesus Christ. Now the dwelling place of God is among men, Revelation 21. No symbol of God's gracious presence needed because we will be in the active presence, the immediate presence of God in the new Jerusalem that has come down out of heaven from God. We will see the glorious Christ shining so radiant that there's no lamp needed in the city because Jesus himself is the lamp, is the light. And we will dance on the streets that are golden and celebrate our crucified and resurrected King of Kings who laid down His life for us. We will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I love the image of the King rejoicing here. And I'm just going to close this with this and then I'll pray. Is there any other time you can think of when there's a king rejoicing described in Scripture? Zephaniah 3.17 Take this in, my dear brothers and sisters. Yahweh, your God, is among you. A warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with His love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. King David, in all of his rejoicing, won't be able to match the rejoicing that will be on the receiving end of our King Jesus as he celebrates when his precious church has finally come safely home. And he's got hold of you, brothers and sisters. He's going to sustain you. And I want you to be encouraged as we close that this day, as glorious as it was with King David and the 30,000 men of Israel dancing before the Lord, the glory of that moment will be as nothing compared to the moment that yet awaits every one of us who have trusted in Christ and repented of our sins. We will dance in the new Jerusalem as well. And we will sing. And Jesus will rejoice over us and delight in us with shouts of joy. What a day it's going to be to be together with Him, enjoying Him forever. Isn't He awesome? Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank You that as we are about ready to enjoy just fellowship together over our Koinonia luncheon, we just praise You so much for just how awesome, how wonderful You are. Lord, you are so glorious, and we thank you so much for your holiness. 
help us to walk in the proper reverential fear and holy awe of you. And help us also, Lord, to enter into joyous celebration. Almighty God, I pray that as we worship you, would you, would you cause our hearts to be moved like David? Help us not to be tempted to lower our affections because of the fear of what Michals in this world might think of us. Help us to let loose our love for you in the streets, but also in the church of God. I pray that our praise of you and our worship of you would demonstrate all the love in our hearts that we have for you. We give you thanks for all that you are, and we love you, glorious Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just thank our Jesus for all these stuff? <laughs> Enjoy our Koinonia luncheon. And if I can uh, just cause everybody to remember, uh, let's have the small children and, and families wait. And let's let the, uh, the singles and uh, those who don't have young children go through the line first. Um, help us all break down the room and get the room ready, and then uh, we'll enjoy our food together. God bless you.